On Tuesday, a massive explosion rocked Beirut and sent a giant mushroom cloud into the sky. The blast, which struck the city with a force comparable to a 3.5 magnitude earthquake, destroyed much of the country's main port, flattened and damaged hundreds of buildings, including three hospitals and a huge number of businesses and homes. So far, 135 fatalities have been counted, 300,000 have been displaced, and over 5,000 have been injured. Hundreds of people are still trying to know the whereabouts of their loved ones who went missing. Al Jazeera spoke with several people about the massive explosion that ripped through Beirut. My husband is an employee at the electricity company. He survived, but his colleagues didn't. They're only now removing their bodies from under the rubble. Material losses are sad, but it's nothing compared to those who lost their lives. This is my taxi, it's my livelihood, and I'm still paying for it. This was Lebanon's Hiroshima. We trusted them with our money, our souls, our lives, and they betrayed us. Why are they still in power? They should all resign. We only have God now. Their day will come. It's like a big earthquake hit Lebanon and Beirut. This will cost billions of dollars to restore. The economy will get even worse because businesses have been hit entirely. In order for it to relaunch, it needs new investments. We will not despair. People on the streets of Beirut speaking to Al Jazeera about the massive explosion that damaged much of the city. To get a better picture of what happened in Beirut and the economic and political crisis compounded by the COVID-19 pandemic that is pushing the country to the brink of economic collapse, Shahram Al-Ghamir spoke with Ziad Aburish the co-director of the MA Program in Human Rights and Arts and visiting associate professor of human rights at Bart College. He serves as co-editor of Arab Studies Journal and Jadalia, and is also a research fellow at the Lebanese Center for Policy Studies. Late afternoon, early evening on August 4th, there was a major explosion the shockwave of which was felt across the city of Beirut and beyond. The explosion happened, as you know, in the port of Beirut, primarily in the part of the port that has warehouses and storage facilities. A large portion of the port is completely decimated, as are the immediately surrounding neighborhoods and buildings. One neighborhood outside of that area, uh, people have described as looking like a war zone. But the effects of this explosion were felt several kilometers into the city and inland, with windows shattering, doors collapsing, ceilings cracking, if not falling in. Many of these cases resulted in injuries and death And in other cases, it resulted in massive property destruction. The current death toll is officially at slightly over 135, with an estimated 5,000 injured and an estimated 300,000 people made homeless or unable to make proper use of their homes. This is to say nothing of the dozens of people that have gone missing in Beirut who are still being looked for. And according to one media report, someone who was missing for more than 24 hours was found at sea and picked up by a vessel and provided treatment and brought back to shore. It's safe to say that there isn't a person who lives in Beirut, if not beyond Beirut, and when I say Beirut, I mean greater Beirut, that was not affected by hearing the blast, by feeling the shake of the blast, or seeing some physical reverberations either to material structures or human beings. Lebanon has a unfortunate history of civil war 
and foreign invasion, assault and bombardment, not to mention political assassinations locally. When the explosion was heard, most people went immediately to what they thought was the worst possible case scenario. For some, they thought it was an immediate Israeli strike. For others, they thought it was an assassination. But in all cases, it either provoked the reliving of past traumas or created new traumas for many people here in Beirut and Lebanon. It's important to also recognize that emergency rooms across the city and outside of the city were flooded with people seeking medical attention. At the same time, at least three hospitals in Beirut uh, were either completely shut down or had major parts of their facilities closed down because of damage sustained due to the explosion. Lebanon's healthcare sector was already severely strained on the one hand by attempts to address the COVID pandemic and on the other hand, the broader economic crisis hitting the country. We are still awaiting a full assessment of what's happening both in public and private hospitals. But it's important to recognize that many people were being treated outside of the hospitals because of the crowdedness inside of the hospitals. And there are anecdotes of people that have had to go to several hospitals before being admitted due to the overcrowdedness. Many individuals actually left Beirut and sought treatment in hospitals as far as Tripoli in the north, Saida in the south, and even parts of the Shouf in Mount Lebanon. This gives you a sense, combined with the growing statistic of over 5,000 injured, and those are just people who are actually reporting to officials in one way or another that they were injured, the large scale of attack on people's bodies and material infrastructure that might have caused further injuries to them. I was in the Manara neighborhood walking with my child and heard the explosion and felt the ground shake. I could immediately see a window from one side of the street pop out along with its frame and go all the way across and hit the balcony of the building across from it. Instantaneously, of course, people started screaming and yelling. Many people rushed to the street to try and get a sense of what was going on. At first, I and many people on the street thought the explosion was actually in either the building where the window popped out of or the building that the window smashed into. But as we turned around and saw the massive plume of smoke emerging from what we later found out was the port, Many people immediately started attempting to make sense of the situation. I myself, like many others, I think, who found themselves in this situation, at first tried to make sure my child was okay, went for cover, and then once I felt it was safe enough, proceeded to go home quickly, at which point I also called my partner, who was out and was at a hotel at a meeting, and luckily was not injured, even though the person immediately next to them was injured as a result of falling glass. And then we reconvened at home, inspected the apartment, and found ourselves very fortunate that there was no damage to any of the windows, doors, ceilings, balconies, or any of the items in our house, although clearly some of them had shifted. Other people in our building were not so lucky. How the shockwave interacts with specific apartments and homes depends both on the proximity to the blast, but also the architecture, whether there were windows and doors already open or whether pressure built up and then produced the kind of damage that we saw in some of these surrounding areas. But I should say that my story is fortunately exceptional in the sense that I myself don't know a single person in my network that hadn't experienced at least physical harm or material damage to their home or both. My entire street and many streets around Beirut were completely littered with glass and continue to be so until today, despite the volunteer cleanup efforts that are underway the explosion was quite stark and significant. And reports are that people as far as Cyprus and people as far as Brumana and other towns up in Mount Lebanon felt it. This was quite the explosion and the damage is still being taken stock of, whether it's to human life, to human bodies, 
to property, and of course, to people's emotional and psychological well-being, and perhaps even the political system. In these tragic times, there are inspiring stories about people helping the ones in need in Beirut. Can you talk about these spontaneous acts? Also, what can you tell us about the contrast between the ways the civil society groups have responded to this devastation versus how the state has reacted to it? Well, I think what we're seeing in Beirut is what we see in many other places across the region and around the world. When tragedy strikes, people immediately attempting to survive the catastrophe the tragedy, and if able to help those around them, many people are. We have countless anecdotal information of people who provided immediate medical attention, either experienced or unexperienced medical attention, people who sought to get people to the hospital, people who immediately tried to get people out of the rubble or make sure people were out of their buildings or their offices. In the subsequent days, many volunteers have been helping search for missing people, as well as forming cleanup crews around the city. It is important to understand that in many ways, the average residents of, of Beirut and Lebanon are coming together in a variety of ways. And again, in not any particularly exceptionalist manner compared to other parts of the world, just so that we don't uh, perpetuate the kind of Lebanese nationalism that is being amplified by specific sectors of the political class and society. The immediate governmental response and the standing governmental response is that no one has taken any responsibility. No one has apologized to the residents of Lebanon, whether they are citizens, refugees, migrant workers, or other community members. The scenes that I described earlier of people volunteering for rescue efforts, scenes of cleaning up neighborhoods, are quite shockingly in contrast to the fact that the only role we see the army and security forces playing are either preventing the movement of people and goods into and out of certain areas, providing protection to certain government facilities, or otherwise standing on the side watching while volunteers clean up and do other work. Now, I'm sure they might be playing a more active role at the site of the explosion, but in terms of different parts of the city of Beirut that experienced the effects of the explosion, and damage caused by the explosion, the absence of state officials is actually quite remarkable. One should note that in the few instances where some convoys of parliamentarians or other government officials were seen, people rushed to chant against them, if not throw rocks or otherwise try to confront them for what they claim is this politician and the broader political class's responsibility in the situation. I should say that there has been a supposed investigative committee that has been formed by the government to look into who is going to be held responsible, either an individual or a set of individuals, for the explosion and to find out what happened. And as part of this investigation, apparently seven people have been placed under house arrest slapped with travel bans and had their bank accounts frozen. These include former and current chiefs of uh, the customs in Lebanon, the port uh, general manager, and other politicians and uh, bureaucrats. However, we are still unclear on what even the overlapping or existing chains of command and responsibility at the port are, let alone what the actual mandate of this committee is and what processes will be in place to ensure a transparent and accountable procedures, both for the committee and for those that the committee might deem responsible. Details surrounding the cause of the blast that devastated swaths of Beirut remain rather murky, but Lebanese authorities blame a stock of uh, 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate for the explosion. Um, it looks like these explosive materials had been stored near the heart of a city which is densely populated and has a population of 2 million people. They had been stored there for nearly six years or more than six years. What can you tell us about this explanation and others that may be circulating? 
I think it's important to first acknowledge that there are a lot of rumors circulating and that there hasn't been a lot of clear, definitive statements made by officials. However, as you point out, the consensus explanation that seems to be emerging among officials and both mainstream media and independent media is that the cause of the massive explosion that sent a shockwave across the city is the 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate that you described. For perspective, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 by Timothy McVeigh was the result of 2.3 tons of a mixture between this substance and one other substance. So compare 2.3 tons during the Oklahoma City bombing with 2,700 tons, and you get a sense of the magnitude of the explosion. Now, what we know is that this ammonium nitrate was stored at the port and was in fact confiscated as a result of various bureaucratic and legal procedures involving a cargo ship that had docked in Beirut in 2013, actually called the Rosas, flying a Moldovian flag, uh, sailing from Georgia to Mozambique. However, during its time at the Beirut port, it was denied the ability to leave. There was a whole set of legal procedures that followed that situation, and eventually the cargo was unloaded and put in this storage facility, specifically this hangar in which the point of the major explosion happened. We don't know too much about what happened since then. However, what has been made clear as a result of the excellent work of local journalists is that this substance was known to several port and government officials, both elected and bureaucratically appointed. It was known to be highly explosive, and there were several warnings made that this material needs to be moved and better stored. And despite all of these warnings, discussions, and paper trail, no one took any action to either properly secure this material to prevent it from exploding or to move it. I just want to make clear that even if the government of Lebanon had confiscated 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate, It could have sold it on the international market and used that funding for a variety of purposes. It could have sought to distribute that ammonium nitrate to farmers for use as a fertilizer. Ammonium nitrate is primarily used as a fertilizer or as an ingredient in bombs. But you have a government and a bureaucracy that left that material intact, exposed, did not seek to take advantage that it was confiscated and abandoned by both the ship owners and the cargo owners at the time. And what else we know about the explosion is actually very little, because if we accept the explanation that 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate caused this explosion, we still don't have an adequate explanation of what caused the ammonium nitrate to explode. There is video footage that shows there was a smaller fire nearby, and that was probably preceded with a small explosion. We do not know yet. And so the real question is, what caused this initial fire slash explosion that then allegedly spread to the ammonium nitrate, causing this massive and much larger explosion. Of course, rumors are circulating, and the two most commonly exchanged rumors amongst people is one, that this was a pure accident, which then led to the explosion of the ammonium nitrate, and other people claim that this was a actual act of sabotage, bombing, or a rocket attack on an alleged shipment or storage of Hezbollah weaponry by Israel and or the United States. But in most cases, the rumors cite Israel. Either of these explanations, in my opinion, are equally plausible at this point. There is a track record that shows that this is not beyond Israeli policy in Lebanon and elsewhere. 
but also track record shows that the criminal negligence of this political class and many of the bureaucratic administrations that it oversees could very well have also allowed for some type of initial accidental explosion or fire. So I want to make clear that independent of what is the original source of the fire that led to the explosion of the ammonium nitrate, the placing of the ammonium nitrate there was a condition of possibility for how big the explosion was. And the primary responsibility for that lies in politicians, government officials, and top-level bureaucrats who were made aware that the substance was there and willfully chose to do nothing to remove it or to speak out and protest the fact that nothing was being done if they felt something should be done. It's really perplexing. Lebanon was in a state of war, an Israeli attack on the country in 2006, putting these um, explosives at the forefront of a possible attack where the Israeli ships and aircraft can attack it. It just doesn't make any sense. I mean, when you can actually, as you said, you ship this material and perhaps sell it. Well, um, it, it is mind-boggling, but I think we should point out that such an act of negligence, if that's what we want to say it is, and criminal negligence with a massive threat to the well-being of both the port facility, the infrastructure of the city, and most importantly, the well-being of its population, it would not be that unique. There is no shortage of examples of this set of politicians and the nexus of political parties that dominate the political system showing little to no concern for the health consequences of various policies enacted in Lebanon, whether it was the burning of garbage when dump sites were closed in 2015 and afterwards, whether it is the uh, higher incidence of cancer amongst residents surrounding the Zoumkail electric power plant because of the poisonous fumes it uh, lets out, whether it's the pollution of the seashore and the seawater in which many people try to swim in during the summer. So it's mind-boggling in the sense that it costs people lives, livelihoods, and sense of security. It's not mind-boggling in the sense that this is a network of politicians and political parties and business persons, not to mention top-level bureaucrats that have a proven track record of, on the one hand, willful negligence, on the other hand, profiteering from putting people's lives, livelihoods, and sense of security at risk. And I think that's really important to point out. We should also point out that we need the investigation and not the government investigation because there is no trust in the government investigating itself to actually figure out why, despite the requests and formal protests and warnings made about this ammonium nitrate, was it left in place? Was it simply that no one cared or did it result in another type of bureaucratic gridlock that we tend to see in Lebanon, which resulted in it not being moved? Those are also two different possibilities. One, no one wanted to do anything and didn't care to do anything. Or two, there was some type of gridlock around doing something. We don't know, and a full, transparent, and accountable investigation would not only identify the individuals responsible, but also the details and settings around which they were and are responsible. There has to be also some concern regarding the chemicals that are released as a result of this explosion, because they very well could be infiltrating the groundwater, the soil, so forth and so on. Well, this brings us back to the point of comparing official statements and actions in the aftermath of the explosion with those of non-governmental organizations or individuals. The government has not provided any information around the potential effects of the explosion of that much ammonium nitrate and its release into the air. No one has, and the government has provided any information about its potential release into the seawater, let alone any other of the materials and goods that were destroyed, burnt up, or cast into the sea 
as a result of the explosion that occurred. There are some individuals and groups that are starting to issue statements about potential uh, hazards that are accompanying the aftermath of the explosion. But again, without knowing exactly what happened with the ammonium nitrate, without knowing what else was stored in the surrounding area, what was burnt up, what was cast into the sea, there is no way to actually provide meaningful advice. And when I say that, it's not to put the government off the hook. I don't think the government is trying to find out those details to then provide people with public health advice regarding those issues. I do know that people north and south of Beirut have been finding various materials show up on the seashore that clearly were part of the storage facilities, either in terms of uh, scrap metal and infrastructure, but also coloring books, canned goods, other items that were clearly being held in storage at the port. There was a warehouse that was keeping drugs and medical equipment at the port that was completely destroyed as a result of this explosion. That's just going to exacerbate the healthcare problem in the country, including the struggle against the pandemic. Absolutely. I mean, again, we don't know what were all the items in storage at the time that were damaged. We do know that there were large amounts of rice. We know that the main grain silos at the port were severely destroyed. And while official statements claim they were mostly empty, those grain silos at certain points uh, contained 85% of the country's wheat supply. We know that medical supplies were destroyed, let alone imported cars and other what we could call non-essential items. The sheer amount of glass that has been destroyed around the city, Sharam, it's not clear to me that there's enough glass in Lebanon to replace if we only count windows in places where people live and work on a daily basis. It's not clear to me there's enough glass. And with the port facility destroyed now, it's not clear to me how that glass is going to arrive, let alone the aluminum, let alone other materials necessary. So this only goes to point out the type of devastation, the material and otherwise, and the potential economic reverberations of this situation. The port is a critical infrastructure for the country. Uh, nearly 60% of the Lebanese imports come through the port of Beirut. We should mention that Lebanon actually imports 75 to 80% of its food, including 90% of its wheat. And you mentioned how the grain silos were destroyed as a result of the explosion at the port. We cannot confirm these figures, but according to state officials, this explosion has left the country with less than a month's reserves of wheat. The port of Beirut is out of commission, and the alternatives such as Tripoli and Saida lack the infrastructure to replace it. Tell us more about the significance of the port of Beirut and the ramifications of its demise for an economy which was on the brink of collapse even before the August 4th tragedy. The statistics that you shared are really telling that 60% of Lebanese imports come through the port of Beirut, that Lebanon is a food-dependent and basically an import-dependent economy. As you point out, Lebanon imports 75 to 80% of its food, including 90% of its wheat supply. We are yet to get a full assessment of what is operational and what is not operational in the port, despite our understanding that it has experienced enough destruction to be out of commission. But we don't know, for example, what would it take to get it back operational in terms of being able to load and unload cargo. Is just just a matter of the storage facilities being the most long-term damage. Can ships even come in? to the port at this point? Can goods be moved in and out? Is there a plan? It's not clear, but it's clearly a, a blow to an economy that was already suffering. But the problem with the port is both short-term in the sense of food supply and medicine and materials needed for the most immediate rebuilding and reconstruction vis-a-vis -vis the damage. But there's also the fact that Lebanon is experiencing an economic crisis at many levels, including a foreign currency shortage and an import crisis. 
We don't know yet, for example, how much less importation was happening because of the economic crisis. Is the significantly lower levels of importation something that could be divided between the ports of Tripoli and Saida? Unfortunately, official statements from those individuals that manage the port of Tripoli or the port of Saida have been largely nationalistic in the claim that Beirut is the big sister or big brother port and it will return to its glory days and we will do what we need to do in the meantime. But we don't really have any information beyond that as to understand, for example, docking, loading and unloading capacities and storage capacities for these ports, let alone the logistics capabilities and person powers to actually move goods in and out of the port once they are actually placed at the port. These are items and issues that we need more information of and the lack of available information immediately by the government is both a symptom of the long-term lack of transparency and accountability about public goods and public services and public infrastructure, but also the lack of an actual government will to respond effectively and efficiently to this crisis and address it beyond the question of who is responsible, the question of making sure that those stopgap measures and long-term plans that are necessary to overcome this tragedy are put in place. Different analysts have commented that controlling Lebanese ports has helped the political parties in power accumulate wealth through the control of state institutions. These parties and their affiliates reportedly use the ports for their mafia-like activities, if you like, and avoid paying customs and taxes. First, let us make clear that during the 15-year civil war of 1975 to 1990, the creation, control, or taking over of ports was a major feature of the competition between various militias, both to ensure supply lines of primary necessary goods, but also arms and luxury goods, not to mention narcotics, whether in or out of the country, but also a form of revenue generation for these militias, because if they controlled the ports, then they could charge other people access to it. In the post-war situation, the state has allegedly taken control of the major ports, and there are technically no informal or illegal ports that are in operation. However, the port of Beirut is a significant port, not just to the economy, but is also considered a port that is politically dominated, one party in particular, and that is Hezbollah, for allegedly being able to smuggle in various weapons or goods necessary or that it deems necessary for its political and military role in Lebanon. I should point out that to be the political party that is politically dominant in the port is one thing, and we need to find out how much that intersects with the question of the chain of command and the different administrative responsibilities in terms of culpability for the storage of the ammonium nitrate and leaving it there. But this issue also brings us back to the question of what was the original cause of the fire or explosion that that led to allegedly the ammonium nitrate exploding? And was it an Israeli attack of some sort on some kind of Hezbollah infrastructure or facility? We don't know. But these are some of the various ways that your question about Lebanese ports and political parties comes into focus. Ziad, how would you describe the mood of the people you have come in contact with since this explosion ravaged Beirut. How would you describe it? Shock, despair, and finally, anger at the ruling bloc? Well, I would like to encourage our listeners today to get online, follow hashtags, follow the accounts of local journalists who are amplifying the various voices of people on the ground in Lebanon. I think shock is definitely one sentiment shared by many people. I think people feel devastated, devastated that there is yet another crisis eviscerating their ability to live fulfilling lives, let alone make ends meet. 
but I think there is also rage. This is the latest act of disastrous policies and negligence. And I want to stress it is a combination of both intentional decisions and negligence. It's not just negligence. It is also about the policies that are in place that are actively produced by this network of politicians, political parties, and business persons. There is great rage. And there are some people who are saying that first we need to take care of the wounded. First, we need to make sure everybody is accounted for. And then we'll turn to the question of rage. But we've already seen it when reports that a convoy of former Prime Minister Saad al-Hariri was met with various chants and uh, stone throwing today in Beirut, as well as when one of the ministers was attempting to walk and inspect uh, one of the affected neighborhoods. She was immediately surrounded by local residents and volunteers with people chanting Thawra, 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 revolution and uh, various epithets at her uh, for being a minister and being part of the politicians. So there are a range of emotions. Uh, trauma is also an important word that I think we need to use. Again, not to exceptionalize Lebanon, but an explosion of this magnitude is bound to cause a whole range of motions. And in any given day, an individual could cycle through many of them or just be steeped in one or all of them at the same time. The words I use to describe the situation to friends and colleagues and family members outside of Lebanon is it is simultaneously devastating and enraging. And I say that as someone who has to acknowledge that I did not live through many of the previous acts of violence, through many of the previous acts of negligence, and through many of the previous crises that most people who spend their life in Lebanon have experienced. Uh, so if that is my understanding of the situation, what is the understanding and feelings of people who, who are in Lebanon for the long term? And again, I would urge people to turn to local journalists and to hear the stories the anecdotes and many different voices that are emerging situation. Distrust of the current political system and desperation became even more evident when French President Macron visited Beirut on August 6, when some people in the street were saying that outside financial assistance should not go through the government. France is a former colonial power. But sadly, more than 50,000 Lebanese have signed an online petition for placing the country under a French mandate. It was not easy to watch the interaction of the French president with the Lebanese who were present when I was watching it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let me say something first about this 50,000-person petition. When people call for a French mandate, they are basically saying, and that was the legal, international legal definition and situation for French colonial rule in Lebanon between 1918 and 1943, with evacuation being complete in 1946. So the idea that there are 50,000 people calling for a return to French colonial rule, I think is uh, highly questionable. And if anything should be taken as an expression of frustration and, and satire rather than genuine desire for a return to French colonial rule, although the efficacy of signing such a petition is highly questionable to me. That being said, I think we need to see Macron's visit as a function of several potential strategies. His visit to Beirut quite quickly and soon after the explosion seems to be an attempt to establish a role for France and Europe in the potential medical and other forms of relief that will come to Lebanon, but also for the broader set of reforms and external support for restructuring the Lebanese economy and potentially the political system in Lebanon in the wake of a U.S. administration and specifically a Trump administration that has privileged maximum pressure vis-a-vis -vis Iran and its local ally Hezbollah, and therefore imposing sanctions that have actually been a part of the deepening of the economic crisis in Lebanon. So Macron, on the one hand, 
is playing French diplomacy and French foreign policy vis-a-vis the European Union, the United States, and the Middle East. And I think it's important to recognize that. His visit, on the one hand, was quite embarrassing for the political elites of the country. He called them out quite directly. And in response to different uh, media questions and chants by people in the neighborhood that he visited or protesters, he sought to assure everyone listening that he was there to support the average and the majority of the population in Lebanon and to empower them uh, towards their own political and economic goals. He made clear that Lebanon was in need of major reform and that most politicians, if not the police, had failed repeatedly and would need to do so for serious support from France and the rest of the world. I should say, however, that Macron here is playing his own political game vis-a-vis his domestic dynamics in France and vis-a-vis international dynamics in the European Union and the Middle East. Let us be very clear, France, the United States, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the United Nations Development Program, and various other external powers, whether they be states or multilateral institutions, have for decades facilitated and sponsored the establishment and maintenance of the current status quo in Lebanon. And so while this is either an about-face turn on the part of French foreign policy or a cynical attempt to be on the right side of history, depending on what happens next, or a power play vis-a-vis the United States or other European powers, uh, France has very little ground to stand on as an arbiter of genuine political or economic reform. And this is only speaking about the post-war period. I'm not even talking about the role that France played during the Civil War, during the early independence period, let alone the colonial period, in helping establish many of the patterns and structures which continue to haunt Lebanon today. If he wanted to speak in the tone and manner he did, which on the one hand was fun, if you will, to see given how confrontational he was with the political class, On the other hand, there was no sense of irony or responsibility in what he said for the role that France has played in creating and contributing to the current status quo in Lebanon, even though, as I've always said, the current situation in Lebanon is first and foremost the making of its own local political class and the various political parties. However, they have been aided, abetted, and funded by France, other European powers, the United States, and various multilateral institutions. Ziad, before the Beirut explosion, uh, the country was already reeling from the worst economic crisis in decades and a deepening COVID-19 outbreak. In examining the political economy of Lebanon, you argue that today's Lebanon is experiencing a set of multiple and overlapping crises. This was, of course, your argument prior to this explosion. They include developmental, infrastructural, fiscal, and currency crises. They are invariably interrelated. Can you talk about what you mean by these multiple crises? I think it's important to recognize that many people have been warning about various aspects of the political economy of Lebanon for several years, if not several decades. And prior to the Beirut port explosion and its reverberations, most of these crises had become quite acute. So the developmental crisis is mainly that since the end of the civil war, Lebanon has pursued a development policy that is largely centered on the service sector and attracting foreign capital via the banking sector and real estate. The problem with that development model is not that it was dependent on flows of finances from outside of the country. It was a development model that, while generating revenue, privileged very few at the expense of very many. Um, That development model has hit a wall. Uh, both in the sense that uh, it privileged very few and did not benefit and came at the expense of many, but that development model is no longer working. There is no longer any revenue generating in Lebanon. The infrastructural crisis is the fact that whether we're talking about electricity, 
water, transportation, or communication, or waste management. These are dilapidated public utility infrastructures that have been constructed primarily to generate profit for those that have been subcontracted to manage them in one way or another, whereas the majority of the population have been left with frequent power outages, with undrinkable water and regular water cuts, with no effective public transportation system, and with highly expensive cell phone and internet provision for very bad quality. And that infrastructural crisis has reached a breaking point where very recently we saw not just different parts of the country, but even Beirut plunged into 20 hours, if not more, of power outages a day. Many people, if they can afford it, are forced to link their apartments or homes to a building or neighborhood generator to provide electricity during power cuts, to purchase bottled water, to be able to drink the water, and to pay for private provided transportation, either in in the city or across the country. And that is the infrastructural crisis. The fiscal crisis is mainly that Lebanon had decided to finance its budget primarily through indirect taxes and local debt, uh, causing public debt to mushroom to almost $90 billion in 30 years. Almost a third of the annual expenses of the state go towards servicing the debt. Lebanon's government simply does not make enough money to cover those expenses it is committed to. And so you have this fiscal crisis. And of course, we can talk about the monetary or currency crisis. There is a dramatic shortage of dollars in the country right now, at the same time that the value of the Lebanese lira has plummeted by over 80%. These overlapping crises have made everyday life even more difficult than it was for the average person living in Lebanon, whether they're Lebanese, Syrian, Palestinian, or other refugees, migrant workers, or otherwise. We are seeing people being fired from work. We are seeing people having their salaries cut if they're staying at work. We are seeing people's purchasing power decline. Unemployment is estimated at over 40%. The poverty rate is estimated at over 60%. Only 55% of the population has any type of health insurance. So even without the explosion, the situation in Lebanon has become quite acute for the majority of the population. And this is why when we think about the effects of the Beirut explosion, we really need to think of it in some ways, another nail in the coffin and another example of uh, policies that have willfully impoverished and rendered vulnerable the majority of the population in Lebanon. Ziad, we should remember that the country has been hit by a pandemic as well, in addition to this explosion and the economic crisis. In fact, on July 21st, the head of the Physicians Union in northern Lebanon said that The situation is really catastrophic and we expect a total collapse if the government does not come up with a rescue plan. And he was talking about Lebanese hospitals, basically, and healthcare system. Lebanon had previously been celebrated as a supposed success case with regards to managing the COVID-19 pandemic, primarily because of the almost rapid uh, total lockdown that uh, the government implemented around mid-March and which lasted towards the end of April or early May. Listeners might be aware that the first COVID-19 positive confirmed case was dated on February 21st, but uh, as of August 6th, according to the Ministry of Public Health, there have been a total cumulative of 5,672 confirmed COVID-19 cases. So if we think of, let's just say, 5,000 cases to simplify the model, the number of days it took to reach the first 1,000 cases was approximately 90 days. The number of days it took to reach the second 1,000 cases was less, and the third thousand cases was even less. It took about seven days to reach the fourth 
set of 1,000 cases and less than seven days to reach the fifth set of 1,000 cases. Significantly, since the reopening of the country and the gradual elimination of lockdown measures in late April, early May, and particularly after the reopening of the Beirut International Airport completely on July 2nd, we have seen a dramatic escalation in COVID-19 cases in Lebanon. We've had day after day of record-breaking single-day total cases. Um, Most recently, uh, according to the Ministry of Public Health, in the last 24 hours, there were 251 confirmed cases alone, newly confirmed cases. The COVID-19 situation is clearly getting out of control in Lebanon. At the same time that the public health system is not prepared to deal with it, primarily because only 55% of the population, uh, and when we say 55%, we really mean 55% of Lebanese citizens, for the most part, have any type of health insurance coverage. Um, Very few of the hospitals have the appropriate capacity to handle COVID-19 testing, let alone treatment and isolation properly. And uh, this raises the, the reality that we are very quickly reaching the limit of COVID-19 ICU-ready beds in all of Lebanon. In fact, according to one estimate from a week ago, is that on August 14th, uh, the country will max out in terms of making use of COVID-19-ready ICU units and beds. This is to say nothing of the fact that healthcare here is largely privatized, that it tends to be much more treatment-oriented rather than preventative-oriented, that various levels of economic crisis have led the government and some people within the population to privilege reopening the airport and whatever is left of the economy at the expense of potential health consequences. This is, of course, totally gone by the wayside in the wake of the explosion, as it should. But it's not clear to me how much more Lebanon and the population of Lebanon can take between the overlapping crises of development, fiscal uh, infrastructure, and a currency on the one hand, the COVID-19 pandemic mushrooming, and now this explosion and the destruction to bodies, livelihoods, and senses of security, let alone physical infrastructure in the country. And all of this, and we haven't yet talked about what the potential political ramifications of the explosion and all of this is, uh, which we are yet to see. On the one hand, one would hope that if anything were to come out of this explosion, would be some kind of mobilization and coalescing around a fundamental challenge to the ruling status quo in Lebanon. On the other hand, we are already seeing bickering and backdoor deals and various negotiations as uh, members of political parties, politicians, and business persons attempt to either settle scores as a result of this explosion or take advantage of it to one-up one another rather than acknowledge that there is collective culpability for the situation today in Lebanon. And if there's any hope to get out of any of these crises, there needs to be a fundamental change. And that short of that fundamental change, politicians will only kick the can down the road a little bit more as they have been doing for the last several years, if not decades.